Welcome, everyone, to episode seven of The Quill and Tankard. And just as a heads up, this podcast is spoilers extended, meaning it covers all the episodes of Game of Thrones, but no leaks, and all the books of A Song of Ice and Fire, including the Winds of Winter sample chapters. This week, we're going to talk about episode four of Game of Thrones season seven, entitled The Spoils of War. I am one of your hosts, Michael, aka Bookshelf Stud. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana, a.k.a. Glass Table Girl. Uh, we're joined by some special guests today, including... I'm Fat Walda, also known as Kibbles and Bits. <laughs> I'm Aaron, I'm Admiral Kurt, I've uh, been around. You're not really a guest. Yeah, anymore. he's not special. No, we've, he's been on every, we've been on every episode. I don't know what I am. <laughs> You're like yeah. Todd in BoJack Horseman, but <laughs> useful. All these references, I can't keep up with them. These callbacks are yeah. so dense. <laughs> so much going on. Who, who is this mysterious voice that we're hearing? What's up, guys? I'm Jeff, better known as Brennan B. Fish. Happy to be oh. guesting again with you guys and ready to ruin this podcast. Oh. Happy was in quotation marks. Uh, just so right. everyone knows. It was in air quotes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we, we... Oh, I need to turn my woes up to 10 because Matt's not here. I know. <laughs> you don't have your backup <laughs> woes in stereo. That's right. We are missing uh, Matt Magician. Matt. <laughs> Joe Magician. We're missing Joe Magician, a.k.a. Matt, today. He's with Ghost. For, he's with Ghost. That's right. He's uh, currently with Ghost. He's on the cutting room floor. We didn't have the budget to have Matt on the yeah. show tonight. <laughs> he's at, Matt is actually an elaborate CGI prop that we use. Uh, when we do the cast, he's just a tennis ball on a stick. But when you guys hear it, uh, he, it's his beautiful voice. Anyway, so he's not, he's not here tonight. So the episode picks off like right where the last one left off at High Garden, which doesn't look nearly as impressive as I hoped it would, but that's okay. It's fine. And we have Jamie and Braun doing their usual banter that they've become so famous for. I was pretty disappointed before, <laughs> like, everything starts. I was disappointed that we didn't get Casterly Rock and High Garden in the intro. Yeah, uh, yeah that would have been cool. Yeah. We still yeah. got Pike. Because we didn't yeah, we got. We keep getting Pike, is, and I don't know why we're getting Pike. What's it's the not deal? Like we're at Pike. <laughs> well, they wanted to maintain the surprise. Yeah. About the attack on High Garden, so they didn't want to put it in the but intro. This but now that yeah. it's yeah. so, th they weren't going to go to uh, Casterly Rock this episode because Grey Worm isn't going to free Edmure because <laughs> Edmure <laughs> is not at Casterly Rock either, and who, who knows where he oh, is oh. now? Hashtag where's Edmure? Twenty seventeen. Yeah. Here's an idea. Why don't they use Old Town as a stand-in for the Reach as a as a region? Because you have like the Wall in previous seasons stood in for events that are occurring north of the Wall. There was no like, mm. you know, Fist of the First Men yeah. um, that That's kind of true. got built up, which would have been cool. But they could have used you know, Old Town as a regional stand-in in, in lieu of High Garden or, I guess, Casterly Rock. Was an Old Town in this? It was. I, the alternative is to say the Reach and put it on Old Town like they do <laughs> Dorne and Sunspear. Right. I think that's a, a bad alternative. I think that's that. really reaching. Oh, <sighs> goodness. We're start we haven't even gotten to the actual episode and we're already making Jeff's side. Like we're on the we're on the title sequence. I'm still holding out hope that Casterly Rock might still appear. Mm, it just doesn't seem important anymore, right? I mean, I, but I guess Grey Worm's there, but that's that's it. It doesn't sound like he's going to be there for long. I heard Jamie is screwing the small folk or something. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, he is. So, I mean, like he's screwing the, the small folk, but he's, he's having all of the Tarly men go out and raid the granaries. And he's sending Bronn, uh, a black-hearted sellsword, out to go steal basically all the produce from the people in the Reach and with winter coming. I mean, it's kind of, 
yeah. It's it's messed up, Jamie. Um, and, and for those who are more enjoy Jamie from the books, it, it does kind of contrast a bit from you know the Jamie who's telling people to plant and pray for another harvest instead of going around and looting their crops. It, these yeah. little su- kind of subtle differences do kind of stand out after a while mm-hmm. because they kind of mm-hmm. pile on each other in terms of how Jamie is different in both mediums. Definitely, yeah. It was kind of casual, too, how they just sort of offhandedly ordered. I mean, I, that could have been a whole subplot by itself, like stealing grain from the small folk, but they're just moving too fast for that now. Oh, it's not just that he was getting him to hand it over. He was sending Braun off to make sure they handed it over with uh, possibly Braun tactics. Mm-hmm. He's going to use both his brains and his brawn. Well, it was played for laughs as well, right? And so it, it's played as kind of this humorous scene of of prawn going out to go loot, you know, someone else's, uh, I, I guess you could see the humor in it, but at the same time, it's kind of like, it's not necessarily a, a funny scene. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It's dark. Yeah. That's some dark humor. Yeah. No pun intended. They opened up uh, the, the episode though, with this taste of food. Um, one of the users on the sub pointed out though, that it was a recurring theme. It was a post that didn't get much attention um, from Tonk Daddy 14. <laughs> Ooh, Tonk Daddy 14. <laughs> That's exactly how many Tonk Daddies I like. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, obviously we banned the other 13, so this is the 14th now. <laughs> They're talking about how this is coming up again and again, Westeros is dwindling food resources. Mm-hmm. How you've got yeah. Sansa's talking about making sure they have enough food for the winter, Jamie's sending the Tarly boys out to collect new harvest. When Danny attacks with Drogon, we get a focus shot of destroying the supply train intended to feed the South and their army. Yeah. They they turn it then and they say it's raising a lot of questions about where the plot is going and that thinking about I felt as though Gurm would rather have a man-slash-feudal society be its own downfall than an army of mysterious necromancers, thinking about the fact that this lack of food is really going to come back and bite them in the ass, more so than others or dragons. or. And I agree. I mean, it kind of seems like they're going towards that in the books, too. Not that I have any specific quotes, but I have the impression from the things that I've read. Yes. <laughs> have you read the books? Have you read the books? Oh, wait, no, no, no. Jeff, you weren't here. Last episode, we established that none of us have read the books. None of us have watched the show. We don't We don't watch Game of Thrones. We don't I read, experienced the series solely through Reddit posts, yeah. yeah. I don't know how to read. <laughs> Who wrote this crap in the document about when is it going to snow south of the wall? That was me, okay? I'm just not crap. Oh, we saw oh, it snow God. south of the wall in the first episode. Oh. Arya. South of the neck. I meant south of the... Oh, and okay, the I, I was writing... And look, look. With the hound... It's a typo, okay? I meant south of the neck, all right? Uh, <laughs> Not south of the wall. You typoed four letters. Because it's snowing in a... Well, they were south of the neck. Where is it snowing south of the neck? Beric and Sandor and all them, they were south of the neck. Were they? That was like in the mountains of, of, of Vale, of the Vale. It's like the Vale. In the mountains. Like the eastern it's different. Side it's different vale. if it's in the mountains, because that's you naturally expect snow to occur mm-hmm. in the mountains. Yeah. Well, it doesn't naturally occur in the mountains. It falls from the sky. Uh, okay, down. right. No, I'm pretty sure that snow comes through the mountain, like osmosis. I think it comes up from the ground. <laughs> Only if it's shaped like an arrowhead. All I'm looking for, and when I'm when I watch the show, I'm waiting for that moment that you see at the end of a Feast for Crows, where Jamie's in River Run, and the first flakes of snow start falling or falling around him. Oh yeah! And then you see it in the Dance with Dragons epilogue, where Kevin Lannister and Grandmaster Purcell are walking through, you know, knee deep snow in King's Landing. Like that's that's what I'm looking for, is because it does represent, you know, the onslaught of yeah of the others. That the others are coming, and that winter and the snow and all that has a very visceral impact of showing us that death is coming for all these people 
And so when you have yeah. a scene where, you know, Jamie's sending Bronn and the Tarleys out to go steal all everyone's food, it would really kind of like make it that much more impactful if you had like snow falling at the same time, because you're basically saying, you know, screw the small folk. These people are going, are all going to die and we're going to ensure they die faster. I mean, that, that to me speaks much more, I've used the same word again, viscerally in terms of, of, mm. of storytelling in, in the show. And I don't mean to, to criticize the show necessarily for this point, because I know that probably doing snow, it might be hard, um, might be harder to like uh, add that on the CGI because you have to like make it, render every single snowflake, right? On or about? Well, snow's actually, I think it's fairly easy. Why wouldn't they just use practical effects for that? Yeah, right. But like, they, you kind of got snow in this episode because it, you got the ash oh. from Drogon, which, True. I mean, I, that may be as close as you get for a while. I think that they may be saving that for some parallel for when Danny reaches King's Landing. True. Like it was in her vision. I don't know how much of that's going to be true at this point. Yeah. My family's from the Philippines. One time, one of the volcanoes erupted. People didn't really realize that the volcano somewhere erupted. And they're like, wow, it's snowing. They're like, how is it snowing here in the Philippines? No, the volcano erupted and ash was falling from the sky. But apparently they thought it was kind of like snow. Wow. So it's, it is close enough that, yeah. that we could. For people who don't grow up hmm. seeing snow. I was going to say, had <laughs> yes. they seen snow before? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not ex- except through movies. <laughs> Speaking of King's Landing in the snow, there was no snow, but there was a Tycho Nestoris of the Iron Bank chit-chatting with Cersei once again, just genuinely impressed with her this time. Last time, Eliana, you had asked that question, like, are we supposed to take that as face value, the show telling us that Cersei is Tywin come again? That seems like this time, yes, like, Tycho Nestoris is genuinely impressed with Cersei. Maybe he didn't necessarily believe it the first time, but now he's kind of like, mm. actually, maybe I was totally wrong. And uh, yeah, you are. I don't yeah, know. I mean, that's possible. In the next yeah. episode, when the gold doesn't come through, he's going to be like, I take it all back. <laughs> no, the gold made no, it. They, the gold yeah, made the gold was way ahead of yeah. the food. Oh, did? Mm-hmm. I said the same thing. Oh, okay. Randall says at the beginning of his scene that all the gold has made it through the gates of King's Landing before the attack begins. Ah. Does Highgarden really have enough money to pay off all of the Iron Throne's debts? Seriously, that's like several million gold, right? Because because Tycho Nestoris says that they never had someone pay off their balance in one yeah, lump sum. Right. I don't see how they could practically have that much. Some, someone out there is going to do the math on like how much gold that would mean and just how ridiculously wealthy the Tyrells would have to be, have that much cash on hand, because that's a lot of money. Well, when you don't pay your army... <laughs> Yeah. That's why they were such crappy right. fighters. They didn't have any defense budget, basically. So they do mention in this scene, speaking of gold, the Golden Company, which is an odd name to drop at this point in the story, uh-huh. I think. Right? You, you cannot believe how excited I was when they dropped the Golden Company name again. <laughs> I can believe it. UK, you can believe it. But I, I it have means been... Fagon's coming into the story. <laughs> no. No. It means no, Cersei it is Fagon. Oh. <laughs> well, people are saying Varys has to, he's going to turn cloak somewhere. Varys is Fagon. What? <laughs> no. Is Lyrio Mopatis just going to show up with uh, Fagon? Yes. No. Like the with six episodes Definitely. remaining. No. The end. Of no. The- so it wasn't actually the first time the Golden Company has, has been in the show itself. If you recall, to season four and season five, the Golden Company signs up with Stannis after he gets the loan from the Iron Bank of Bravos, and then they abandon him just before the uh, the battle, quote unquote, oh, of Winterfell, yeah. and. Um, 
so they are in the show. I guess they all the the assumption is they fled back to Essos after yeah. Stannis lost outside of Winterfell. Well, the first time the Golden Company is mentioned in the show is back in season four when Davos comes to Stannis and recommends that they hire them in order to continue the War of the Five Kings. And Stannis rebukes him, saying, like, they're sellswords. I hate them. <laughs> Which he already hired Salador Sand back in season two to help him take King's Landing, who is a sellsword. True. So none of that makes any sense at all. <laughs> And then later when he marches up to the wall and on Winterfell, after he gets the money from the Iron Bank, Stannis never refers to them as the Golden Company. He just keeps referring to them as sellswords. Mm. So it's not really confirmed or denied in the show that he ever got the Golden Company. I mean, they might retcon it. They might make it the Golden Company, but they, they probably won't. At the time, they didn't feel fit to ever mention it as being like some sort of plot point. It's plausible that they would have joined with Stannis and then yeah, abandoned him just as the battle was about to go south. Maybe if they wanted to do some more Stannis shaming because the Golden Company shows up. It's like, yeah, we followed this guy up at Winterfell, but then we took off because he burned his own daughter. Yeah. What a crazy... Can't wait for that scene. <laughs> but the uh, the Golden Company is uh, it's interesting for, for book readers because we assume, a, a lot of people do anyways, that the Golden Company will end up facing off against Daenerys anyways because the Golden Company will be at the forefront of Aegon's army and we assume that Aegon and, Dana and Danny are going to engage in some sort of second dance of the dragons in either Winds or, yeah. or Dream of Spring. Um, not to get too much in the weeds, but they function as a very effective fighting force against someone like Daenerys Targaryen. Yeah. They have all of these different parts of the company itself, which are, if pitted correctly against Danny's forces, have the ability to offset some of her advantages she's got. They've got spears, which are sort of the, a match for the Unsullied. They have elephants, if they bring elephants, and I'm not, I'm not saying they're going to bring elephants into, um, into this show, though that'd be cool. Um, it would kind of offset the advantages that the Dothraki have in all their cavalry. Uh, allegedly, horses don't like the smell of elephants, and they'll actually flee from elephants on, on a battlefield. Is this true? Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's allegedly. I've, I've read that from um, uh, the Battle of Zama, where Scipio defeated them, they, that he... Um, he put his, his horses behind him or something like that, so they won't charge through, through his lines. Then they have these really great archers, too, um, which they could use against the dragons, possibly. But don't know if the, any of that's going to come up or whether that's just too in the weeds for the show. It seems like it's something that would be way, way beyond what they're willing to feature at this point as they kind of sprint <laughs> yeah. towards the finish line. Yeah, that, that combined arms tactics doesn't seem like it's going to be a major plot point, but... <laughs> It's still something that could play out on the screen if a cool-looking army that moves in an advanced fashion compared to, like, the Lannisters just marching towards something. Yeah. Jeff, why did the Lannisters have two groups of horses, like, inside the middle of their infantry when they approached Highgarden? I have no idea. <laughs> I, okay. <laughs> I mean, you would generally put your cavalry on, on the flanks, right? Because flanks, you're supposed yeah. to fix yeah. flank and then it, – it's called fix flank and finish. Is kind of the, the doctrinal way they talk about it. So you're supposed to fix the your incoming army mm -hmm. that that's attacking you, and flank them, encircle, and then finish them or destroy them right. in the process. That's kind of what the, they're supposed to. So it didn't make some of the formations. All <laughs> the formations didn't make sense to me. Maybe that's their victory formation. <laughs> their victory formation. Speaking of gold, Littlefinger, who was the master of coin, uh, sits down and has a chat. In what some of the moderators are apparently in the planning document calling Creep Bowl. Who, who's responsible for that, by the way? <laughs> oh, that was me. Yeah, I <laughs> that in. Creep Bowl. Littlefinger and Bran. 
head to head. I did like that Chris watches Game of Thrones. Littlefinger brought a knife to a creep. <laughs> Breakdown is pretty funny. What is Littlefinger do? Like, what is he still doing around? I mean, I, I know why he's around in the show, but why is he still around? You know? Yeah, right. What I'm wondering about is like, so clearly Littlefinger isn't really backing John, right? And he's backing Sansa because he's a creep. Mm. And he's super creeping on Sansa. But then he brings up to Bran how much he loved Catelyn. Does Littlefinger, in fact, like, yeah, he's being creepy, but does he also, in fact, have some sort of sympathy towards Bran as, like, mm, oh, the woman yeah. I love ish, <laughs> but, like, maybe I don't really know what love is, but I think I know what love is, was your mother, and thus he, like, actually, in some ways, wants Bran to succeed in whatever that means? I yeah, mean, he told him wondering. He told Bran that he, if he could have been there, that he would have taken the knife yeah. for his, you know, in his heart or whatever for his mother. And like, I, my head I, no. I actually kind of <laughs> like Littlefingers. I, I know it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It might be Aiden Gillen for me, but um, <laughs> I can believe that Littlefinger actually would have some affection toward Cat's children. It's kind of like Ooh. a duality. <laughs> Cartesian duality. He's like the creepy stepdad. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like a weird father role to Bran for him. He's like, here's the ancestral yeah. weapon, except it's completely perverted because it's he's handing Bran the weapon that was going to be used to kill Bran. Littlefinger would have taken that. Catelyn was, in fact, in the room. You know, her life was at stake. Catelyn told him and shows the scars on her palm. And so maybe Littlefinger would have been willing to take a knife to the heart to protect Catelyn. Mm. Not necessarily Bran, right. but like Cat was there. So so working off of the stepfather angle, which I think is a really interesting one, of all of the Starks or Snows that Littlefinger's encounter, Bran is the yeah. one he knows the least. So he's he's only heard about Bran. He's never met him before that scene. So to me, it read like Littlefinger was trying to feel Bran out and find out what he was into, if that makes sense. And so the first angle we went with was his, was his mom, Catelyn, right? So he has this connection because he knows that Catelyn brought the knife down to King's Landing back in season one. And knows that the knife was meant for Bran, but that's really all he knows about Bran, right? So he's trying to suss out some way, some angle that he can get into Bran's mind and start working on him, but it doesn't work. He's had years, well, at least a few years with Sansa now, a few months with Jon. Arya is going to be another wild card we'll get into later on, uh, which is another situation where he doesn't, he's out of his element. He doesn't seem to know how to deal with Bran or with Arya either. And, yeah. like, in the in-depth discussion thread that we put up every single week and you can find it stickied after the episodes, um, user E1Duder, um, regarding that, like, trying to feel Bran out thing, he's like, he says that Littlefinger is trying to curry favor with Bran by treating him like a normal 13-year-old, or however old Bran is. Boy, a normal kid would be super stoked to get a sweet dagger. Especially the one that was meant to kill him, but like, you know, and, and that's true, especially after what we see of Joffrey. Joffrey's like, sweet new weapon, let me hack the book. Oh, it's, it's just like Sweet Robin and the glass- uh, Oh yeah, he's treating him like Robin Falcon. Like, the glass Falcon that he throws down the- That's a great point. Moon door. That's a great point. And then he replaces it later with a bigger Falcon. <laughs> that he's, he's like doing this thing yeah. where he just gifts gifts to little boys because that's- Oh my! Whoa! <laughs> um, but so I don't... when my sister was texting me about this episode, by the way, her phone kept correcting Littlefinger to Little Dinger, which <laughs> is the best Littlefinger nickname I think I've ever heard. Yeah. Of. So canonically, he's Little Dinger now. 
Yeah. Speaking of little dingers, uh, in that same thread, user a meat popsicle pointed out <laughs> that uh, yeah, it 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 did seem like Littlefinger is trying to get close to Bran as a way to supplant John. Like he's he's looking for these ways to sort of find a candidate who can he can make his and then get rid of John and put that person in charge. Again, Littlefinger isn't, I don't know that he goes into any of this with any kind of plan. Mm-hmm. He just tries to see where he can get a foothold and then use it to his advantage when the time That's a good up. point. He's he's like, he's like Gurm. He's he's throwing down seeds and seeing what, what sprouts mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, in the same thread like responding to a meat popsicle that you bring up <laughs> Jeff was just talking about Littlefinger being out of his element and this user Really quite boring. I didn't think this this was boring, though. (laughs) Says, you know, like, responds to someone saying that LF shouldn't have gone north, and he's saying that, like, it could be in some ways, like, echoing how Ned meets his demise because he goes south and ends up out of his element. Littlefinger goes north and ends up out of his element, uh, making a series of bad moves. Like, you know, he doesn't know how to be honorable, whereas the south values schemes or, like, Everyone's out of their element when it comes to magic. So yeah, exactly. The, the, the people took this reverse Ned thing to its logical conclusion. Uh, Pineapple2727 points out that then they can sew an extra head onto Littlefinger at the end of the season. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a way to really bring it full circle. <laughs> in this episode, really, magic bubbles up to the surface in every plot. Like, you have Littlefinger, who for six seasons has been able to sort of talk his way around things and get people to do stuff by giving them gifts, things like that. And then he comes up head to head against the magical plot, and he is just like he's bowled over. Bran knows everything. He's, he says chaos is a ladder to him, and that just completely undoes him. And that keeps happening with every story. But how does Bran know that? Well, it's a good thing I have this other thread in our Do- document. Really? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Um, by user. <laughs> it's Welsh. Do it. Do it. By user. So um. <laughs> what? What? S A W A M W. Sawam. 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 Ah, it's like the lion sleeps tonight. You gotta get the w at the end of Sawam. No, um. Yeah, so basically, you know, he's talking about why Bran's the way he is. He talks about how Bran is unable to pick and choose what fragments he sees. And, like, that seeing certain things would prompt him to see certain memories. So, for example, he can't choose what he sees, but certain things will influence it, like Sansa plus Snow plus Godswood Mm. equals Wedding Night. And then he sees Littlefinger plus Chaos equals Chaos is a Ladder. So, because Littlefinger mentions it, that prompts Bran to, like, see that line, I guess, Chaos is a Ladder. That's the what the user Sawamwa is proposing. So he's like a Google search. Yeah. Here's your keywords. And- yeah. Yeah. Keywords. I like that. Good good thread, Sawamwa. Well, that transitions over to um, Mira Reed saying goodbye to Bran, which is a pretty mm. brutal moment, really, for, for Mira, who's, who's sacrificed so much yeah. to see Bran's journey prove successful. And she gets told, thank you. That's the <laughs> extent of what Bran does to, to thank her for all the, the horrors yeah. that she experienced on the road yeah. to the Cave of the Three-Eyed Raven and on back south fleeing the, the White Walkers. And that last line that Ellie Kendrick had, you died in that cave, very powerful line, very good delivery. Kind of the, the casual way they could have done is just cut from that line, right? And then, but they, they chose not to do that. They lingered on Bran for another, I'm going to call it 10 to 15 seconds, where he looks away and I'm not sure what that is meant to communicate, whether Bran 
realizes that Mira's right or whether there's something else at work, whether he's he's gravitating back towards his, his identity or, or something like that. I really like that lingering shot they have of Bran. It felt ambiguous to me, and I, I've been thinking about it a lot since since the episode. This is true. Maybe he's starting to boot up again. I mean, maybe it's some post-traumatic stress. I mean, like, he just couldn't deal with everything, so he just shut off. Do you think he's lying to himself about being the three-eyed raven? I mean, I guess maybe, maybe not. Maybe he thinks that he has to become this character to defeat the the White Walkers, but at, at the same venture, it feels like... I think they thought of this thing in the writer's room like... Well, they had the line a long time ago where Jojen tells him, it, the three-eyed raven is you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they didn't really express that in his personality at the end of last season, that Bran had gone through this massive transformation, especially because he goes back to see that memory. And he seems normal, he seems taken and emotionally grabbed by seeing little baby John. <laughs> Maybe they thought of that, the, this personality change uh, in between seasons where I don't know if they necessarily know where they're going with it when they came up with it. I kind of had this theory with Eliana on Twitter earlier that they switched Maisie and Bran's personalities from the Winds of Winter because they wanted to give Maisie more emotional, powerful material to work with. So while she's becoming like a psychopath Mm. in the Winds of Winter and going down this darker route, Bran is experiencing like all these emotional heightened moments where he gets to feel all these people through the werewood and their stories and he becomes they're very sympathetic in all these feelings um so he really should have what Arya's personality is like in this episode right no i i totally agree with that i think that in the very least that Arya is acting like she hasn't been affected by this at all like her demeanor when she's fighting with brienne and everything is like Arya before she set sail to bravos right she's just mm-hmm. very cocky mm. and she's still i mean she has this hit list but she had the hit list before she became a magic assassin so like i feel like her character hasn't undergone any transformation from the training that she got in the house of black of white well i felt like at the at the end of season four even i hadn't read the books yet well that was the point when i was reading through them but the last scene that Arya has with the hound is very cold and so unsympathetic towards sandor as he's sitting there taking those wounds from Brienne and it felt like this is the route that she was going down as far as like into becoming like more of a psychopath disconnected from her emotions and the emotions of other people and after that then like she goes to Bravos and I didn't really feel like Maisie had that much to work with in Bravos where she could really show off her acting because Jacken was very distant and so she had a little bit of stuff with Lady Crane in there, but they really didn't give her much to work with. And now I feel like in these past in episode two and episode four, she's really had a lot to work with, with like Hot Pie again and with Sansa and stuff. And Macy has just absolutely killed it. You, you can make the point that Arya being no one would have transitioned through many different iterations of, of changing faces and would have all of these different kind of personalities embedded in our consciousness now because one of the things that is talked about in a dance with dragons is how when Arya changes her face she's going to experience the emotions and some of the terrible and horrible things that some of these people have that died and then that their faces are now owned by the faceless men mm, you could yeah. see that where Arya would just not be able to quote-unquote boot up necessarily if that makes sense She's also being told to suppress those emotions when she puts on those faces. Like, you have to learn to deal with them, and you have to learn to keep these down. Whereas Bran's story, there's really not any of that from Bloodraven, 
up in the Three-Eyed Crow's cave, where he's like, go back and experience these things. There is a certain amount of that, but but he does tell Bran straight up, like, don't bother trying to change the past. Like, you can't do that. I mean, I, it's it's different. He's not telling him to not get emotionally involved, but, uh, you know, I'm just saying there's, there is some of that, I think, for Bran in sort of a remove yourself. Bloodraven's teaching him to skin change into, like, birds and stuff, and he's, like, feel the 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 way the bird flies and its emotions and that sort of thing, right? Doesn't he like tell him that? Experience it? I mean Well that and but it's the thing with Ned and, and seeing Ned at the Godswood and all that and, and Yeah. You know, up there's a there was a brother I loved and a brother I hated and woman I loved and you know, I can't change anything about that. Like the impression I got from Blood Raven, right, is is like that he's jaded and he's like, Don't get emotionally attached to this stuff. I don't know if I see it as like don't feel emotions. I see it as like Blood Raven is event- essentially giving Bran the same lecture that Maester Eamon gave John when John first joined the Night's Watch. It's like this is, is a duty. This is a duty yeah. and you can't let mm, your feelings yeah. get in the way of that sort of thing. And you're gonna feel things, but like it's still like yeah. and duty. as opposed to John where John has to choose to not take an action. Blood Raven's like, yeah, I mean, it's gonna suck, but, like, you can't do anything. And the more you try and, like, try to do stuff, the more it's gonna suck. <laughs> so, just don't. Great. It's a butterfly effect, right? Great pep talk. There you Conceal. Go. Conceal. Don't feel. Yeah. Let it go. We are in the snow. But Arya arrives at Winterfell this episode. No way. Whoa. On National Sisters Whoa. Day, Spoiler alert. (laughs) According to D&D, it was a callback to Odysseus and returning home and nobody recognized him, I guess. No, no, I didn't see that because Uh, Odysseus would have slain everyone when he got home. He'd been like, (laughs) all right, first we're going to talk about my bedroom. Let's talk about my bedroom. (laughs) And then I'm going to kill everyone except for the dog. Well, the dog would just disappear and they couldn't find it. (laughs) That's true. She says to the dog, that's not you. (laughs) (laughs) And it was clearly a callback to season one, and they should have just left it at that because it was great. It was a perfect callback. Everyone like got it that that was a callback to season one when Arya yeah. just reentered. I believe it's the Mudgate, and that was great. Well done, right? Good job. Uh, this is a little yep. too perhaps, long. Yep. Yeah. 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 I agree. With that. I, I, for a half second, I thought that the they were going for that scene from The Clash of Kings where Arya you know, approaches the Bolton Guard out of Harrenhal and just straight up murders this guy right yeah. like he she drops the coin and then she slices his neck that i thought that's the what they were odysseus going for, for yeah well that would have been much more that would have been the odysseus <laughs> move to do <laughs> but i mean i, I uh, didn't think it was it was a bad scene by any stretch yeah. i just thought it was going in a different direction than when it actually went this is coming up yeah. but Arya reunites with sansa and she says you need better guards and all i could think of in the moment is you know who needs better guards hbo needs better guards <laughs> Damn. That line would have worked if she killed him, Was some meta commentary? <laughs> okay. True. I really like this theory. It's pretty brief. It's by user OMG Brookberry, and the title is, You Can't Protect Me, No One Can. That's what Sandra Stark says to Jon Snow. She's like, you can't protect me, no one can. But Arya is no one. If Sansa needs better guards, maybe Arya will protect her. Ah. There you go. That's a good theory. I like that theory. It's like simple. Yeah. There we go. I'll take it. Yeah. So Sansa and Arya do reunite this episode, which is awesome. I, the crypts was a good decision, I think. Yeah. They've been getting a lot of mileage out of the crypts and Ned Stark statue, um, <laughs> including the the fact that apparently the statue is crappy in universe. Like that's. I'm kind of glad. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
<laughs> was this a Matt Damon Matt Damon Team America moment where they're like crapping on their own sculptor like yeah this guy is terrible <laughs> looks nothing like him I think that's exactly what it was I guess it was so dark in there maybe they figured it didn't matter yeah. I thought it looked yeah. a lot like Ned it, me too oh. it was a likeness yeah but I mean like if I'm his kid if I'm his kid I guess I'd be like yeah it doesn't look anything like him but like I mean it kind of looks it kind of looks yeah. like him because it has a head <laughs> so- oh <laughs> I mean, even in our real world, like, a lot of the royal portraits that you have of people and sculptures don't look like them. Like all those Beyonce wax figures yeah. that don't actually look like Beyonce. <laughs> or, like, yeah. a lot of the royal... Don't have her skin color. A lot of the royal uh, portraits look way better than those people really looked. Mm. Ye old, Ye old Photoshop. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking, like, what was it, Charles V or something? Yeah, the Habsburg. Yeah, yeah, Philip, Philip II's father. The jaw guy. Yeah. Arya asks about Bran. You know, they talk about Bran. They talk about John. Rob gets a mention, I think. Rickon does not get has not been name dropped at all. Where's this Rickon season, at? Where's the boy at? String? Where's Rickon? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> my headcanon is that there is a scene in between where they walk to go talk to Bran and they bring up mm. Rickon. Yeah. And in the next scene, Arya is kind of like morose. Mm. So maybe that was shot and it was cut because she learned about Rickon's death, but they just decided to cut it. I saw some people on the sub who were like, well, maybe like he's already interred in the crypt. And so she saw Rickon, but she didn't see Bran. And so like she was surprised about Bran. See, this is my my problem with like that sort of in theory is that it's not it's it's a great meta reading of what might have happened, but it's not featured in the freaking story. So. You can't. Yeah. I mean, it's a good theory, <laughs> yeah. but it, there's there's no way that's ever going to be proved because they've moved beyond the narrative, beyond that story. Right. It's just really making up for a mistake. Yeah, it's already passed. Yeah, they it. should have a thingy for Rick on. Yeah, they need to get their Rick on. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also the line when Arya shows up to the guards. They say, "Lady Stark's in charge," and she says, "Which Lady Stark?" I'm like. It's not your mother. It's you and your sister. Like, you know your mom is dead. Yeah. You probably heard that Talisa is dead. Unless there's, like, a missing plot where John gets married with, like, in a span of an episode, and he has a mystery wife that they cut from the show. Could have been. That's true. Arya doesn't know that Jon Snow didn't take a wife as- as Still wouldn't be a Stark. Well, she she doesn't know that he's not a Stark, you know? The guard said Jon Snow. Yeah. So then we have a nice scene with the three Stark- siblings hanging out by the weirwood which i i just the other nice thing about this season and all the plots converging and things sort of they can linger on the starks for like 15 straight minutes of the episode yeah yeah. which we didn't get at all in seasons five and six like you'd be lucky to get five straight minutes of a single story but we got starks for days i think maybe that's why this episode felt so good is because it was more cohesive yeah. yeah, I agree. Like, getting to spend more time in each region and actually, like, build it out. And I actually just wanted more more stories about the North and the siblings, like, getting together. And yeah. and then we had to go somewhere else, I guess, whatever. You know, dragons. I think what helped last episode quite a bit was that Arya wasn't there because we didn't have to cut to her having, like, a a scene down with somebody else in an ancillary arc in the neck and this scene mm. Arya is finally back with people where her story matters <laughs> where it's not a sidetrack for the first time right. since yeah. uh, probably season oh one almost in some ways not so much season two or three but one of the, the criticisms of the, the show at least this season is how fast they're they're pushing forward towards the end game 
But the moments that they slow the story down and they have these scenes, long scenes with Arya and Sansa in the Winterfell crypts and Arya, Bran, and Sansa at the Heart Tree in Winterfell, it really shows and displays the creativity that the writers truly possess behind that because it is something that allows the viewer to marinate in the emotions mm-hmm. that they've mm-hmm. built up over six and a half seasons of Game of Thrones yeah. and marinate also in these characters that they've come to love and care about and seeing them together because, you know, you don't, as much as you might disagree with decisions that the characters make, you don't want to see Arya Brand Stark go down or, or suffer these terrible things that happen to them. Seeing them at the Winterfell, at, at the Godswood was really moving and touching and a, kind of a simple scene, but it, it really struck a chord in me. I, I rewatched the scene a few hours ago before we, uh, we, we started recording and I, and I, I felt even more emotional watching it the second time than I did last night when I watched it for the for the first time. If that makes sense. Well, that's because you're a pansy. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> how how bleeding heart? These these three between them know more than probably anyone else in Westeros about just everything that's going on. Honestly, Sansa was like there for some really important events, including the true story of what happened behind the War of the Five Kings. Arya was there at Heron Hall with Tywin. Bran obviously knows everything. Like. That they combined, I'm assuming that off screen between episodes four and five, they're just talking to each other and getting up to speed. They have to compensate for Jon Snow knowing nothing. Ah, that's what Very true. Excellent point. I was going to say it's kind of ironic that this episode so far this season felt the most lingering and the most like it was breathing and taking its time. And yet it was the shortest episode ever of Game Mm, of Thrones. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, Bran gave. Bran gave Arya. Oh, yeah. Bran gives the, the Valyrian steel dagger. I'm going to which... just like go on that tangent and talk about how great Maisie Williams, <laughs> it, Williams' acting is in that scene. Yeah. Just because like Bran's like, oh, yeah, Cersei was on your list. And then like the way Maisie looks at Sophie Turner, uh, yeah, I really had a list that, that wasn't a joke. And please still love me, please still accept me. And like, it was yeah. all conveyed in her face and it was just so well done. And, 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 the, yeah. and the joke too between Sansa wondering, it seemed like that Sansa was implying, asking Arya if she was on Arya's list at the uh, the end of that scene too. Oh, really? I didn't get that impression. That sort of, it, it was kind of, it was like kind of half joking is, is what the way I read it is, is like, who else is on your list? Yeah. And then with the kind of the smile oh, sort of yeah. thing. To me, it read yeah. like that's that. Kind of, was, because that's like an old Arya move. That's like a, Arya from season one moved to like, like as a little kid, be like, ah, yeah. oh, Sansa's on my list. But this is older Arya who's like, yes, no, I legitimately kill people and I have a list of people I'm going to kill and murder. Um, you got anyone you want me to add? Sansa's like, you know? oh. Yeah. yeah. But like Arya's eyes don't yeah, say that. It's like that. a shopping list. Her eyes there are just like asking yeah. for forgiveness and acceptance despite everything. Yes. So. Yeah. Maisie Williams is just like killing it this season. I really enjoyed, too, Sophie Turner, like, Sansa figuring everything out, right? She's in the crypts, yeah. and she's like, yeah, I'm the Lady of Winterfell now. And they're, you know, they're getting to know each other again, and she's trying to explain what's happening with Bran to Arya, and then the list comes up again, and, you know, Littlefinger, they're talking about Littlefinger. And then, like, in the next scene, when Arya and Brienne are sparring, and Sansa is just trying to take all of this in. So speaking of that scene with Arya sparring, shout out to uh, Joanna Robinson. Man, she's awesome. Went through and found, she, she got gifs of every yes. single echo in the fight scene, oh, really? calling back to previous fight scenes for Arya. That's so cool. when she's, you know, like the stuff she learns from Serio, obviously, but then when she's with the Hound and she's trying to spar with him and she just like stabs him right in his armored belly and he laughs at her and punches her. 
she no longer goes after Brienne's belly. She's going after her joints and her legs and stuff. She gets up and and dodges things just like the waif did in Bravos. She ends by pointing out that she's dressed exactly like Ned was dressed the last time Arya was with Ned and has her hair done exactly like That's cool. Ned had his hair done. That's super cool. I felt um, like that was familiar. And it's it's Ned's hair. It's Ned's hairstyle. And Sansa's actually wearing Catelyn's hairstyle from season one. It, or one of them. Correct me if I'm wrong, because um, I haven't seen season one in a long time, but the... Um, where Sansa and Littlefinger are standing is the same place that Catelyn and Ned Stark were standing when they were watching Bran, Rob, and Rickon fire the arrows into the um like this. This is like the second scene of the entire show, right? Bran, Rob, and John. Yeah, Bran, Rob, and John. I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but I believe those scenes were shot in a different location, and they later moved it to this. But set. it's definitely evoking that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, it's totally calling to it. Bran, Gwendolyn. Christy. 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 Captain Phasma. Would absolutely eat Arya for breakfast. She was being <laughs> easy on her. She was underestimating her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah like just the, the size difference there. I know they're like trying to say it, it kind of goes against earlier what Sandor said about because Trant had armor and a big <laughs> effing sword. Yeah. Brian's like swinging wildly in this. She's not. She's letting Arya parry her attacks, and if she just closed with her in like half a second, she she'd be able to shrug off that blade. I think they want to keep Arya having needle in the show, and there are lots of theories that she mm-hmm. might get Dark Sister in the books, which is an old Targaryen blade uh, that Blood Raven had uh. up in the cave. And some people are thinking that maybe the blade that Bran has that. That Littlefinger gave Bran, that Bran gave Arya, is going to be retconned into being Dark Sister, Could which be. it which it wouldn't be in the books because Gurm has said that he he now looking back on it he yeah. had, he wouldn't have made that a Valyrian steel dagger because it stands out too much it's too ubiquitous. I don't really think that it's going to be Dark Sister because it would obviously be your sister. Uh, <laughs> whoa. Uh. I've been waiting all week for that one. Oh my this god! Podcast. <laughs> Just set this up. No, I, I, I do think they could, they could retcon it into being Dark Sister in the show. I would not be surprised. Um, another, there was a recent thread that just popped up. Uh, that Eliana, you linked on Twitter. That oh, was yeah. by. I like that you, one. Sir. I I retweeted that was it as cute. well. Yeah, I thought I saw it was you great. It. We're gonna find. We're gonna find this thread. I promise. The internet moves slow. Promise me, Aaron. Promise me. <laughs> The user is suggesting that Arya has a sword named Needle, and that Arya will name this dagger Thread, right? Oh. And it's by a user Rambaz710, and just saying that because it's a tiny dagger, mm. and so that way Arya could be said to be sewing with Needle and Thread when she's fighting. Uh, I think that's great. That puts a smile on my I, face. I thought that's it was cute. cute. I love that. I dig that. Who yeah. names their daggers? <laughs> We can't, can't say that. We're not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you just said everyone, lots of like, people every, name their daggers. Everyone like inhaled at the same moment. We were all about to say that. We're like, we can't say that. <laughs> so someone in the in the planning document put something about the music at the end of this scene? Yeah. Uh, at the very end of the scene, they do not play Littlefinger's music. When Littlefinger looks down, the Serio Pharrell faceless man music. Yes. And when I was first yes. watching the scene, I don't I have not seen anybody else think this, but I thought that the way that the, the music implied it, and having Littlefinger watch 
Arya spar there and look down and smile that they were implying that Littlefinger was Cereal Pharrell. <laughs> what? <laughs> because of the way that he's looking down, he's smiling, and they're having her spar in front with Brienne, and he's seeing her sword play. And at the end of the scene, Arya says that no one taught her. But Cyril Farrell wasn't a faceless man. But then there's this guy up on this balcony looking down. He smiles. And I had the impression that it was saying, like, he, it's a proud teacher looking at his student. That is, without a doubt, the silliest possible conclusion to draw from that scene. <laughs> it was the music. They didn't play Littlefinger's music. Anytime well, Littlefinger yeah, glares at somebody, because, though, they play his because, music. Well, he wasn't not, glaring, though. He was he was looking he was super smiling. nervous. No, he it was, was an, nervous. It was an Arya triumph it moment, was, though. I mean, it's it's a... Or it's because yeah, it's... Littlefinger has roots in Bravos, and Sirio Pharrell was the first mm. sword of Bravos, and thus they're both from Bravos. But um... you're way overthinking this. <laughs> no, oh, it's because Sirio Pharrell was a faceless man. No one taught her to fight uh, like that. And then you cut to Littlefinger, and we're doing all these cuts to like Jon Snow every time there's a Targaryen <laughs> mentioned. Maybe it's just like written in my brain now. I'm supposed to think <laughs> that the <laughs> mysterious person they're talking about is... So Sirio Pharrell is now the one creeping on Sansa? He just saw her one day in the Red Keep and was like, yo, I'm about that. And then he just... Like... Sirio Pharrell has taken a liking to this girl. <laughs> a man. A man has taken a liking I'm... to <laughs> Well, see, it would never work because Littlefinger pulls that dagger on Ned's throat, right? And then they send the gold cloaks up to grab Arya. And he, she's training at that yes. moment with Sirio. Yeah. So there's no possible way that that lo right. logistics work out. But the way it was implied with the music in the scene and the way everything is set up, <laughs> you have to be a crazy person, but I'm a crazy You're person. You're a crazy person. But <laughs> go watch it again and try and interpret that they're that they're like trying to say that he's Cereal Pharrell and you can see where you can I see that. Wow. I think he was well, smiling because he needs he needs chaos and like what what better chaos He saw San he saw Sansa distrusting her being surprised this, like, by Arya and was like Right. The little you know, sister is this. a deadly killer. A girl has learned to water dance. So speaking of faceless men, uh we then move to Masande. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Mm, that's a good segue. <laughs> Missandei and Danny uh, have the uh, girl talk that was promised about Grey Worm. Uh, su surprisingly mild, actually. Not, not a lot gets said. And then they pan down to John, who's at the bottom of the stairwell, looking like a dog who just shat on the carpet. Um, John stands the same way in front of Danny. And, uh, all these, all these. Seasons, he's got his shoulders hunched and like his head kind of down. Is he and looking he looks gormless? Exactly he does look gormless. He's also Of course he looks gormless because we don't have the next book, so we have no gorm to go uh, off of. Uh, I mean the, the way the the way the, sh the the scene is shot too is every single scene <laughs> until they get into the cave itself is shot with Danny above John looking down on mm. John. So it's it's the it's the cinematography too that's communicating. John's <laughs> does look like he's really out of his element with Daenerys Targaryen and Danny yeah, is yeah. towering over him in every single scene until they get into the cave of course so yeah Missande, Missande, and Danny they exchange those girl talk looks and they're like yo what's up with Grey Worm and then and then John shows up and then Danny gives Missande a look mm -hmm. like yeah we've been talking about this like that boy we have had girl talk mm. about John before John Snow my <laughs> speaking of the Lord's you know Kiss it, would it be the King's Kiss now I, that's what I've been wondering. Everyone keeps mm. calling it the Lord's Kiss, and I'm just wondering. 
John obviously leads Danny into the caves, which he has a pretty good track record with. <laughs> I, yeah. I was a big fan of the cave paintings and stuff. I mean, that's yeah. I feel like you don't get enough prehistoric art in fantasy, which is weird yeah. because it's a good fantasy thing. It's a fun fantasy trip. Apparently, literally no one believes that the children of the forest <laughs> drew those. Like, <laughs> everyone on the internet is like, John... John, did you draw these? <laughs> yeah, it's just no. like there's a picture of like re- a really well endowed man who looks suspiciously like John Snow. <laughs> no, that's my problem. <laughs> oh wow! So, did you see this, Danny? That's crazy. With a big yeah. old dog, and it's like terrible. Like his eyes are crooked. Yeah, yeah, John. I don't believe John's a talented artist either. <laughs> they look a lot like the petroglyphs that you'd see out west in. I say out west, like in the American Southwest, in the canyons and things like that out there. You see a lot of spirals and stuff like as, that. As mm-hmm. D&D said, those French caves. The caves of Altamira? Yes. Yeah, yeah, which is a what... great song by Steely yes, Dan off the Royal Stan album. Exactly Holy thing. heck. I've oh my god. I've called I spent my days alone. So the uh, the cave drawings is something that seems a very likely pull from a uh, Winds of Winter sample chapter that George R. R. Martin released back in 2016, which is from the perspective of Ariane Martel, where she's uh, traveling north to Storm's End to meet up with Aegon. And her and her party stop in a cave in the Rainwood. There's there's a great post by a user, Krakenborg, called The Show's Slight Nod mm. to a Book Scene with Ariane Martel. In which the uh, which Krakenwarg talks about how in that cave Ariane goes with her friend and uh, former lover Damon Sand into the depths of the cave to look for mm. Ilya Sand, who's wandered off into the caves, and they c- stumble across these Lady Lance, yeah. Leah, right, Lady Lance, and they stumble across these paintings that the children of the forest um, drew on the walls of the cave, and it's a really cool um, callback to that. And you were talking about earlier about how prehistoric times aren't generally featured in fantasy novels, but George R. Martin seems to have kind of forgone that, subverted the trope, so to speak, and and has a uh, <laughs> and does have the the children of the forest these paintings in there, uh, and it's really cool to see that actually visually depicted too. And cool uh, catch by Krakenwork there, and um, yeah, again at that Aryan chapter, I think is still on Martin's website as the sample for for the Winds of Winter. <laughs> so check it out. Well, it's a good here's yeah. here's Delio on the inside of the episode. David Y or David, y, <laughs> David Benioff is talking about this. There's what's called a ninja edit where like somebody cuts away from something and they smash in other audio to then cover something up. Mm-hmm. And you can tell this very clearly on the inside of the episode because they also cut the video track at the same moment because after this point, Benioff's lips wouldn't match up with what he's saying. Okay. So in this portion, it sounds like he's saying... Uh, that George said blah, 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 and that they cut away from that, where he was going to say more about what was going to be in the books during this scene. Like, there's something that George had influence in here Interesting. in this moment. At least That's my tinfoil I mean, about it. Could it also just be that he, like, sneezed or whatever? And I mean, not. <laughs> I don't want to take the wind out of your sail on that, but, like, could it be that he's just... It, it, like, that they did cut, but there's some less Georgie reason for it the phrasing is weird he makes it sound like they have no idea what it means when when he's really saying that like the people would have no idea what it means i heard that as like a like almost like a dm or something who doesn't actually know what it means but they're trying to like keep it ambiguous for the players so they're like oh these cave paintings they're so mysterious right and they don't know what it means but they're gonna make up something good but by the time the players need to know 
<laughs> the line is one of these things we learned about smash cut these cave paintings mm. okay so it sounds like he's saying one of these things that we learned about from george these cave paintings but then like there's more audio in here that may have been cut where they were talking about something from the books and that they learned they shouldn't do that after a couple seasons ago. You know what I, I, you know know. I kind of miss? If you guys remember from the uh, behind the episodes from seasons one and two, and I think three, and, and actually four as well, because George wrote the episode, wrote episode two for that. It was where George would be a part of these behind the scenes yeah. uh, featurettes yeah. talking about religions and the faceless men and different things. It, it'd be cool to have him back for some of this stuff. And obviously it's understandable why he can't be there mm-hmm. because yeah. the show is so far beyond where he is, where the narrative of, of the books ends, but it would be cool to have him talk about the cave paintings and what it means. And, yeah. you know, George is good. And the answers that he gives, you know, you could go through uh, the So Spake Martin archive and see that George is really good at answering questions that he wants to people to think about. He provides a lot of ambiguous answers to things, or yeah. things like keep reading or, yeah. or and things like that. And it's, you do kind of miss out on that when you, when George isn't there in the behind the episodes and you have David and Dan who do okay work, I guess like we can put it uh, kindly. <laughs> Beyond the Ariane chapter, there's also this aspect to Danny's memories about the house with the red door where she remembers seeing these animal faces carved. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah. This is, this is hella tinfoil. This is good. The, the whole point of her remembering the house of the red door, as Eliana said before, is because it's this memory of like a better time that has long since passed. But, there's an aspect where she may have like seen some cave paintings like this in the past and has contorted those memories from wherever she was in the world. Whoa. I don't know. Wow. Very cool. Really makes you think. <laughs> Everyone feels about John Ayres, um in this scene because they do kind of play with the dynamic of John and, and Danny They're definitely getting together. They're hard on it. Like, yeah. Pun intended. <laughs> I, in, in the inside <laughs> the episode, right? They, he says something about like there's clear attraction or something like yeah, that. Yeah, obvious chemistry like, there. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't feel the chemistry. Yeah, I, I don't. It seems like it's two attractive people in a room together. Yeah, but uh, like I don't know, like Egret and John, you could feel that, you know. Well, partially because they were, and they still are, I believe, dating in real life. It, it does feel very much like, like Michael, you said, like two pe- attractive people in a room together, and so obviously they're going, they're going to get together. Although it, it does present the idea that. They're both at an impasse, right? They can't, you know, John's not going to bend the knee and Danny requires John to bend the knee. What's the way that you actually solve that? Well, you have two single people, two single rulers, call it, and now they'll get together. They, they form a marriage alliance and that's how they solve their, their problems. At least that's how it, it reads to me. It seems like that's the solution that the show is driving towards because they, they have to find a way around or through their differences. If they're trying to show the attraction between the two of them, there should be a little bit of flirting. There was flirting. Just just at least a little bit. There was flirting. So A, there's the look that Danny gives Masande, B, in the cave. Like, this is not a thing that, like, people just do. John puts his arm around Danny and moves her wrist with the fire over somewhere else. That's flirting. That's playing pool. And then Danny takes another step and then another step. They just keep getting closer physically. And to me, that's flirting. That's playing pool. The other way, too, they do it is when they're walking out of the cave, it looks like John and, and Danny are walking out hand in hand from the cave. And then it pans out and it shows that they're not actually holding hands. But but I did see that and it did visually register as maybe some visual foreshadowing of, of what's going to happen. Well, they did have at least they had Miss Sunday was in there, right? That's like fair. they had a chaperone. 
in the cave. We didn't see Missande. She didn't catch up to him. Though. Yeah, she gave them some alone time. She yeah. got lost. Yeah, she probably made her. She probably found Blood Raven's cave. She knew the dragon glass was code for dragon ass. Am I? <sighs> she was looking for spots to hang out with Grey Worm when he got back. Yeah. Before he hacked it to bits. <laughs> Scouting out. Yeah, she's doing the only reconnaissance in the show. <laughs> They could have sold the paintings a bit more if John had already started digging and they found this entire room, like, buried inside the cave that had been, like, cut off. It was explained, like, why Stannis had never seen it, mentioned it, and stuff like that. But then the implication is that it, John and Davos have just been, like, hanging out in a cave mining. Well, I understood that she's probably going to, like, have some of the Dothraki help because she said that you can have everything that you need and the Dothraki aren't doing anything except mm, sitting around. That's so. a good point. Well, we'll get to the Dothraki. Uh, Someday we'll later. get to the Dothraki. They're not doing any mining anytime soon. The Dothraki. Oh, fuck me, yeah. I think the only other thing about the, the cave scene that I wanted to point out was the Mance Raider callback where Danny specifically says, what's more important, your survival or your people's survival or your pride or something like that. It's exactly what John says to Mance in the episode that Mance is, is burned to death. Yeah. I liked that a lot because... Yep. It almost feels like it justifies all of Mance Raider being in the show. You know what I mean? It it mm-hmm. because we've seen John have these conversations and all that, when he's presented with this question again, like when it's flipped on him, we the audience go, Oh yeah, okay, cool. Like it's drawing on this pool of stuff that it has. And they didn't need to explicitly have John go, you know, I once said that to a guy named Mance Raider. <laughs> um you know, like it it's just there and it exists and they they don't have to say that in the dialogue. So I thought that was a very nice yeah, um, sure. yeah. throwback thing, especially since Mance Raider is um, Danny's brother, Rhaegar. Right. <laughs> so that's uh, <laughs> even more important. Speaking of people with good hearts, <laughs> this is a Danny segue. Is, her, is this her finding out about Casterly Rock? Oh yeah, yeah. Oops, um, I segue the wrong thing. Yeah, Tyrion. Or speaking of good hearts, Tyrion has a good heart. Yeah, Saint Tyrion arrives on the scene. <laughs> Speaking of rocks. Yeah, speaking of rocks, Tyrion brings news of the casterly one. Meek Tyrion, who is kind of crapping himself a little bit. I, yeah, my plan's going fine. Don't worry. We can just keep doing it. It's great. Now I imagine Tyrion is Morty when you said it. This is fine. This is fine. Tyrion and John both telling Danny not to go to Westeros with her dragons to burn her way to, to victory. Mm-hmm. And the viewer is left with the impression that Danny is not going to take her dragons to Westeros because she has two advisors saying don't do it. Yeah. But, you know, as we all know, by the end of the episode, she ends up going to Westeros with Drogon. And personally, I felt that fake out worked really well because it really brought the surprise of Danny showing up yeah. in Westeros. Mm-hmm. It made it made an actual surprise because I, I didn't expect that to happen. I expected Danny to be like, okay, well, I won't go to Westeros with my dragons then. So I agree that it's a fake out, but also there's a loophole because mm-hmm. both Tyrion and John are like, you can't go around burning castles and burning, mm-hmm. burning King's Landing and all these mm-hmm. uh, innocent people. Yeah, Danny doesn't do that. But he never said armies. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. There is a loophole in there, but I definitely fell for it when I when I was watching the episode that I didn't expect. You know the end of the episode to actually go about the way it did. The other interesting thing I found in that scene is that Danny starts to get really angry about all the grain that is being stolen from Highgarden and being taken back to King's Landing. Yeah. Just mention any any of the gold that Highgarden apparently has in droves. During one of the scenes in the battle, 
it looks like that Danny just strafes mm. the line of carts that are going back into King's yeah. Landing, and it seems like, and maybe it's not, maybe it's not true, but it seems like it's all the grain that's going back there. So it sure seems like she's intentionally hitting the wagons pretty hard on her little thunder run going through the Laster lines. I don't think they're done with that. The next time on trailer had Barris telling Tyrion, he's like, we have to be able to control her or something like that. I feel like her going after the food either was her plan out of spite or wasn't her plan and Drogon was just going nuts. And she didn't know the grain. Well, that's true, I guess. She was talking about the grain coming from Highgarden and it seemed like to be a setup for things that happened at the end of the episode. Davos and John have better chemistry than Davos and uh, than John and Danny. Oh, I thought you say than Davos and Stannis. It's like everyone has better chemistry than Stannis and anyone. <laughs> Wrong. That's the whole Incorrect. point. <laughs> Davos is trying so hard with Missende, and she, like you know, she's got a boyfriend. He's got a wife. Yeah, where is Davos' where is wife? Where is Maria? Seriously. Uh, I mean, I guess we know that Davos says in the books, he's like, I haven't been the most faithful, and I'm like, yeah, but we don't need to see you doing that. Yeah. I'm not sure she exists in the show. She has, he has a son, or he has... Yeah, but she may have died in childbirth like every other mother. <laughs> I'm getting the impression that Davos now is going to live to the end of the series and retire on a ship to Noth, because they keep name-dropping <laughs> in front of him. And yeah. it's like, just get on a boat already and go there. Why and <laughs> then the butterflies. And then the butterflies. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's, the, that's the spinoff right there. Davos versus the butterflies. Well, there's one more arrival at Dragonstone this episode, and that is Theon Greyjoy, who John is mad at. R- rightfully so. This was another one of those scenes, like we were talking about earlier with the knowledge flow, where I was as they were walking towards each other, I was like, okay, wait, what, is, what does Theon know about John now, and what does John know about Theon now? Like, <laughs> how much do they know about each other? Yeah. I thought it was strange when Theon got off the boat that his personality was not like we last left him. He seemed to transition back into normal like Theon. I'm surprised he didn't try to jump back in the water. I kind of liked it and just and, and maybe this is just the book side of it, but you know, Theon just kind of looks really down on John in, in a Game of Thrones mm. in the first few chapters of the book. Yeah. So he kind of resumes his whole like Theon role instead of Reek, where he seems to have left himself, maybe seeing John trigger himself out of his psychosis, so he becomes Theon once again for, for a brief moment before he, John. Like he, he doesn't knows feel, how to act he doesn't feel threatened John. by John. Yeah. 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 And before he is threatened by John. John's like, I thought you were dead. And he missed the perfect opportunity with what is dead may never die. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, actually, yeah, you're right. That would have been so yeah. hardcore. That would have uh, been so hard. Well, I think that brings us to the main event. All of this has been but a preamble. Pre-ramble. <laughs> no, the main out. event was the North. The main <laughs> event was a Stark reunion. We're going to what the producers are calling the loot train battle, which is just about the dumbest ass name. I still say that sounds like a Lego set. Yeah, it does sound like a Lego set. <laughs> I'm really liking the title we have in our planning document, which is the Rumble of the Rose Road. You like that? Um, although yeah. I think they're on the, are they on the Rose Road? Well, they're in the Canyon Lands. Who knows where so they are? No, they're. they're- <laughs> There's like some river next to him, but it's not. They imply because Charlie says something about they've gotten all the gold over the Blackwater Rush. So they have to cross the Blackwater, which coming from where they are coming up from the Reach, it would make sense they're on the Rose Road. But the Blackwater Rush is really close to King's Landing. I guess in the show, it's kind of ambiguous how close or far away the Blackwater is from King's Landing because we have the shot from Olena in season 
five when she approaches King's Landing where you can't see it right next to the city. Mm -hmm. So it might be like 50 miles or something south. It doesn't really make sense from a city construction point of view, but like maybe it just it's not close to King's Landing and it's just south of there. The landscape really doesn't match the terrain of the Crown Lands. It looks more like it should be close to Tumbleton, which is farther to the southwest. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have so many qu- I mean, I, I feel like I have so many like logistics nits about where they actually are, but I, I feel like they're not worth really exploring. Because, I mean, if, if so, the Dothraki have to land somewhere, right? So, they, their most likely course they would land is, I don't know, south of the Blackwater. And then they would ride 600 miles across across Westeros to hit them, like, at the Mander? It doesn't register to me as... Because of what Tarly says, that they're, that they're pretty close, that they're going to get over the Blackwater Rush by nightfall or something, or that they're trying to get over it by nightfall, they're within, like, range of King's Landing. So Danny took her ships, and she landed right beside King's Landing, and they're just south, like, maybe 50 miles mm, short yeah, of I King's Landing. That. I mean, so, ultimately, yeah. like, there's big canyons and rock fixtures it's like uh, this is this is a scene a location-based adventure that <laughs> doesn't isn't connected to the road anywhere it, it's it's just isolated ultimately like we can try and logic it out but they just didn't write it for yeah yeah i think that's why i don't really want to like talk about like where they actually are because yeah. it doesn't make it doesn't matter they're yeah. right ultimately. here i'm putting in the video they're right here <laughs> there we go thank you oh wow look at that uh, that's so so we've got the the chat with dick and Fancy Lad School, which is the best Fancy Lad School in the whole episode. <laughs> Broad gets all the best. Died laughing when Jamie got his name wrong again. Yes. Yeah. You know, Dickon saying, I'm, I'm Dickon. <laughs> and then Bron just bursting into laughter just, yeah. just kills me every time yeah. I watch it. Like, uh. it just. What are you guys talking about? They did mention Rickon in this episode. <laughs> The look on uh, the the actor who plays uh, Dickon's face it makes that scene what mm. it is. The, the yeah. scene got more serious as, as it progressed, and I, and I found it to be my favorite scene of the entire episode. And it's really only a short scene where the way that uh, when when Jamie Brown confronted Dickon and, and was like, "Oh, what did you think of the battle?" He's like, "Oh, it was, it was glorious," you know. And then they said, "Oh, your father's not around. What did you really think of the battle?" And he says, "I didn't really expect it to smell like that." Really, kind of brought it brought it home to me. That scene, and it seemed very almost George R. R. Martin-y. Mm-hmm. George, back in like 2012, said, I'm fascinated by war, brings out the best and the worst in people. Literature in the past used to celebrate the glory of war, and then the hippie generation of the 1970s wrote about the ugliness of it. And I think there's truth in both. I'm just going to call George R. R. Martin out there and say that, no, it preceded the hippie generation. The turn started after World War One with the modernists. But anyways, go on. <laughs> no, it was cool. And I... Gravitated towards it for for personal reasons. Um, I really uh, empathized with Dickon, and and I felt that this super minor character who's may have five more lines for the rest of the season if he survived the battle, which we don't know for sure. Uh, I really felt a, a real connection to the character, and I and I think that it, it communicated really well some of the themes of the story that both George R. R. Martin and David Benioff and Dan Weiss have embedded into it, and it's, it was great. I loved it. So there's a an interesting post that I saw from user More Stake Less Fanta. And <laughs> amazing, amazing. <laughs> I like both, but um, so, so anyway, so, so talking about this conversation, you know, how Braun quips that he knew about that from the age of five and everything. It's like what you would expect from Braun, but he says it, it reminds him of a conversation that um, it's Robert and Barristan Selmy and Jamie Lannister are having this conversation about mm. fighting. 
is a really good scene as a lot of the just scenes in season one are when people are just talking and they are talking about the first people they ever killed like their first blood basically and robert says that he killed in in the battle a stupid tarly boy yes the quote and i don't know if this is the direct quote but in general is they never tell you how they all themselves yep and so robert mentions this and that he was surprised by this you know when he was in his teens and, and had he does his he first. does typically say that stupid tarly boy i'd forgotten about that. uh-huh yeah yeah oh, that's also crazy. the way that uh mark addy who's playing robert baratheon does that little laugh after he talks mm-hmm. about it yeah. like it's this really it's not like a humorous laugh it's like this really sad and it's a fantastic little scene from season one and it's a great callback if they intended that as a callback which maybe they did it seems like kind of seems like they did yeah Probably. After that conversation sort of talking about war, and it felt just like a John Wayne movie with they hear the thunder of the hooves and then they circle the wagons and then you can hear the war whoops over the hill. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. And the terrain, like you were saying, with the rocks and the... Yes, it's canyons and it's absolutely a Wild West movie. And it has that same sort of tension that you get in Wild West movies. Where, whether it's gunslingers facing each other down or listening for the Indians coming across the plain. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, looking at the horizon. I don't know about you guys, but when that line of Dothraki appeared, I got I got goosebumps. That was that was fantastic. The really cool thing about that, and again, George R. R. Martin has talked about how the Dothraki are not just the Mongols in a, in a fantasy setting. He says, yes, I base them on the Mongols, but I also base them on the Alans, the Scythians, and the Native Americans. So it, to me, it, it felt like Mm-hmm. homage to, to Martin, how he said that the Dothraki are just not Mongols. They also have this Native American tradition, which is really, really cool. And and I, the same thing, I felt this huge chill when the, when the Dothraki appeared over the horizon and with Jamie trying to run his soldiers up into a line and things like that, just, it was great. Which reminds me, I think it would be a really interesting research angle, given that Gurm lives in New Mexico, to research some Native American myth and to see yeah. if it aligns any with the mythos of Westeros. But. Yeah. I mean, there For must sure. be some with like ravens and crows and trickster gods. Mm-hmm, um, yeah, but crows and wolves are tight. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but I, I haven't seen anybody else mention it. But that when Bronn opens up the canopy of the <laughs> scorpion, the way that he reaches up to pull the bolt out to open mm-hmm. it up, that's reminiscent of like on trains when you reach up what? to pull. Oh yeah, yeah or pull the brakes or stop it uh-huh. so i wasn't sure that they were going for that or that was just how it was designed but i thought that that was a very like neat little subtle thing that like made it feel like a western mm. more than you would expect because you never expect anybody to do that kind of emotion in a show like game of yeah. thrones for yeah that's a good really point anything it's, it's very subtle yeah. it's the subtleties not the gosh things we do. It wasn't just the, the Dothraki appearing, though. It was the Dothraki charging, and then all of a sudden, the uh, the cry of Drogon oh, over yeah. that kind of silences the, the, the yeah. music. The and... look on Nikolai Pasquale's yeah. face uh, when the yeah. dragon screams is... Yeah. And Bronn's like, we, we, we gotta get out of here. <laughs> it, it reminds me also of like what Ed says back up to John at Hardhome, where he's like, we're gonna die here! Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like oh, ice yeah. and fire. It's a good, good callback. It's sort of a dualism. Cartesian um, dualism. Whoa. Yeah, this is 100% Cowboys and Aliens, that movie with Daniel Craig. <laughs> yeah. Oh. 
Which of course harkens back more to that World War One thing I was talking about. There's all this new technology, if you can call it dragon technology, and then this the scorpion, the giant scorpion. Yeah, yeah. Right. The shot of him like looking through the crosshairs at Drogon. That's, I mean, that's a World War One thing. That's World War Two. Yeah, that's yeah. that's super. It was very unnatural. Um, mm-hmm. Anti aircraft gun. <laughs> yeah, and like how Jamie's compared to the Dothraki who are charging, you know, the way Dothraki charge versus like um. Jamie's troops just like all get in line. I I don't know how much of this is true. Like Jeff, you're gonna have to verify this. But it's like in World War One, like apparently the French were really lagging behind the rest of the world uh, of Europe in world in warfare, and they were still like wearing red. They were still lining up. So one of the things that they talk about in World War One is that the the French army of 1914 essentially looked the same as the French army looked in the Franco-Prussian War, which had occurred 40 years before, the same uniforms, mm. uh, the same formations that they would march mm-hmm. in, the same tactics that they would use, whereas technology had moved well beyond 1860s, 1870s. I think the Franco-Prussian War was 1870, if, if memory serves. And, and it gradually, that, that changed. And one of the things they talk about is that the French war soft caps until like 1916 which was crazy when you have all this freaking artillery fire going you need to protect your noggin the thing thing that really struck me as well about that scene was the Lancaster soldiers lining up and i think they had that shot of that one guy that just looked just freaking terrified yeah, yeah that was great yeah. by the small actor too yeah yeah like mm-hmm. just a small extra bringing a lot to the scene you gotta love it yeah. yeah yeah and so props to him i hope he gets roles in the future that that are beyond extra roles shaking <laughs> that, yeah, yeah he's, he's quivering like they're standing with a spear against a dragon like how crazy is that and like you don't have any option to run away at right. that point either yeah. kind of you have to face your own death and you can really kind of feel the way that soldier felt in that in that moment and of course he's burned like the next second right and he's yeah. one of the groups of soldiers at least it seems the scene transitions to drogon then burning yeah, yeah, the mm-hmm. soldiers that are that are there. That is, I mean, even without the dragons, they're Dothraki screamers. Like they're one of their major tactics is fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I wanted to draw a comparison because th- there's that shot right of the soldier quivering in Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King during the charge of the Rohirrim at mm-hmm. the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. There's a shot of the orcs like shaking in their boots and looking scared and stuff, and that's an unambiguously triumphant moment, right? Like the orcs look scared, and that's good. But in Game of Thrones, it's like a human being. Yeah, that scene where the Dothraki Co. talks to Tyrion about how their people can't mm-hmm. fight, right? He has that that line. And I was thinking about this, is that your average Lannister soldier is probably just a plowboy that's like put a spear into his hand. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about, you know, Septon Maribald's like thing where you put a spear into a guy's hand and you send him into battle. Like that's the extent of the training these guys have. Mm-hmm. These aren't people that live generation to generation in constant warfare like the Dothraki are. Right. These are just like small folk that are drafted into the army and then forced to fight against an impossible enemy and against impossible odds. And it really, that line irritated me and I think it was supposed to irritate me um, because you feel for these guys, these Lannister soldiers who are the bad guys, the quote unquote bad guys of the series, you really empathize with them. And that's, it's, it's great. I think it's, well, you have, Tyrion right there to be the analog for that within the story. That and we got the Ed Sheeran scene with uh, oh, yeah. humanizing, humanizing the Lannister soldiers, which yeah. I mean that was that was a lot to do with Arya, but it kind of comes back here for me. Like these guys who were talking about the end of the war and going home. I did I did wonder tactically why Jamie lined his his men up in front of the wagons. I was thinking that it would probably be better to line them up behind the wagons who would break the charge, but that's, again, that's a tactical knit on, on, on my part. Probably also didn't have time. Fighting was uh, never their forte. <laughs> <laughs>
I wonder, like, if there's somebody that's going to come along and destroy the Dothraki next. They're going to be like, they they were terrible at fighting. <laughs> it's just it's gonna be the Night King. Yeah. He's going to be speaking and Scroth or whatever the. Like, it was like, oh, that was beautiful, Aaron. That's that's my Scroth. I mean, we're not allowed to. So you you said a word in there that we're not allowed to. Uh, to <laughs> So you can bleep that part out. But, uh, to take it back to the discussion we were having before, after the the Lannisters are burned, <laughs> is that Danny? How Danny then strafes the um, the wagons yeah. going up the road as well. Yeah. And I wonder if that was intentional. The callback to when Danny was ta- was talking about how the grain was stolen from from Highgarden. I guess she made a decision to deprive uh, King's Landing of the grain, and so she decided to roast it, roasted nuts. I mean, she also might not have known. Hearts. Uh, what else train. would have been in the carts? I mean, it's called a loot train. I don't know. When I think loot, I don't think food. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yes, loot. Lots of jewelry and yeah. golds. A musical instrument. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that as well. True. I, I kind of feel like it was her getting caught up in the moment and just being like, yeah, woohoo. Yeah. And then maybe, maybe next episode, she's going to be like, ah, ah, heck. Really shouldn't have. Really shouldn't have done that one. Yeah, I mean, we um, see Danny making mistakes. Because come on, if you're riding it, like you saw how awesome that shot was of her strafing the wagon train. Like, if you got the chance to do that, who among us? Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> none of us. But it's all because dragons plant no trees. Really, it is though. It is. It is. It really is. Which is how it's going to go down in the books. I saw a lot of people saying, like, well, this battle's clearly never happening in the books, and probably not exactly like this, but there's definitely going to be something where Danny yeah. goes way overboard on her dragon and ruins a lot of people's lives. That's inevitable. There's going to be a field of fire 2.0 of some sort. Yeah. We've already seen her accept fire and blood and, like you said, dragons plant no trees. Like, mm-hmm. the idea that she doesn't and the idea that she doesn't have this PR problem, like, it's more set up in the books that she will. Like, that's more, like, telegraphed than it is in the show. Yeah. Well, because presumably they're going to have somebody take over Westeros who is not like Cersei and who is actually somewhat well-liked. So, like yeah. Aegon? Like, so, and then yeah. She, <laughs> yeah. Maybe he'll anyway. have the golden company, too. His sweet, his sweet golden bob. <laughs> <laughs> Word. There's, I mean, there's definitely elements of the books that they're giving to Cersei and the Lannisters this season that... Will yeah. be mm-hmm. Aegon's in the books, yeah. like the haircut, <laughs> like the haircut. <laughs> so Bronn gets his own sort of tracking shot in this episode, similar to John's in the Battle of the Bastards. Oh yeah, kind of nice that they're showing it off for the minor characters. Getting yeah, right. Good action scene in for Jerome Flynn. I actually like this one a lot more than I like the one in Battle of the Bastards because mm-hmm. that one felt too um like World War Two landing on Omaha Beach, which didn't mm-hmm. really feel real in a medieval sense whereas here when it's just brawn there are just a couple of people that are around him in this chaos because it's portrayed as like the, there's this huge class of an, like an indian attack almost of like yeah. nothing but horse infantry mm-hmm. it's not they're in standard battle formation so i the the chaos in that moment it was less people and the chaos was heightened fewer um <sighs> i hate you <laughs> <laughs> So it wow. felt more real. It felt more real. And I liked his little fight against a uh, random Dothraki yeah. dude. Also, man, it was so nice that it wasn't just gray. Oh. Yeah, yeah, like all the, the having colors, it, oh, yes. the warm colors yeah. was Even cool. like the Boltons Beautiful. versus the Wildlings, everything is gray. Yeah. And here you have the Lannisters with the red and the gold. You have the fire. You have the earthy browns. You have the Dothraki, right? It's the green like, fields that are suddenly like black. I That, I think, 
You're right. That, that that was something really nice about this battle was the color. Amazing. There's a lot of talk in this uh, episode about that that place that Braun comes from. Uh, Braun jumps on the scorpions. Is Braun a secret Corgile? What? Because they have scorpions. Jesus, oh. Moses and Mary. <laughs> what <laughs> a ridiculous subtle thing. nuance. <laughs> the theor- your theory is this episode. Corgo and Dorn. Incredible. So wait, is he? Could he be a bastard son of Lord Commander Corgile of the Night's Watch? Who was the LC before Mormont? Oh, then that's why he went Wait, beyond be. the wall in the show. It really could be. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. He could be. Oh boy. Oh boy, guys. Bron Corgile. Well, Bron Sand, I guess. That's why he and Tyene get along so well. Ten part. Yeah. That's why he wants the bad. No. <laughs> no. Didn't finish. So uh, the scorpion that Bron fires and uh, misses Danny for the first time and then fires again and then hits uh, Drogon. The scorpion is actually a historical weapon. It's a really cool weapon, too, that has a history that goes back to Roman times. They were used for precision shots. And Julius Caesar in his Gallic campaign talks about how he was able to fire the scorpion and could hit precise targets up to 100 meters Damn. and could shoot per parabolic and hit targets up to 400 meters with a little bit less accuracy and precision but still a pretty deadly weapon with a lot of strength behind it they talk about how the bolt from a scorpion could pierce a wooden or metal shield and then could impale the soldier behind the shield so it makes sense that kyburn would say this might be the weapon we need to take down a dragon because you're thinking about the force of the impact and how it can drive through metal or, or very hard wood and then hit something behind him um, with, with enough force to kill them or wound them. It seems to me that it's a really effective weapon against Drogon. And now that Danny knows that the Lannisters have this weapon, she may be averse to using her dragons as much. Maybe, and that yeah. might be something we, we'll see in, in future episodes. Also, and The Hobbit, and there's a thread about how Drogon does get injured by the Scorpion. And I think, like, some people thought we were retreading ground or they didn't like it because they felt that it spoils something in the books. But I think, in my opinion, it was something that the show did to remind us because some people might have forgotten about what happened in Doznok's pit where Drogon was pierced by a spear like yeah. up close to show that dragons are not invincible. Yeah. And then, so this user, Shrug Life Forever, <laughs> in the thread, Drogon versus Cal Drogo says, with Drogon becoming injured in the most previous episode, all I can think about is how Drogo died. A slightly deep cut to the shoulder was all it took to take down the unbeatable call. So they're wondering if maybe, like, the fates of the two are tied, and that Drogon, like Drogo, dies from that injury, like, getting infected, etc. Well, he's not going to tear off his poultice. (laughs) I don't know. He, Are uh, they going to get one of the cones like dogs have to keep them from messing wait. with their wounds? Yes. Yes. After he got shot, after he oh got shot, God. like I just, Drogon was like, Mom! Mom! Mom, it hurts! Get it out! It's, so <laughs> George has implied in the books that this isn't how dragons are going to take like bolts like this because he said before that the dragons in his books are more invincible than this because you have to hit it right in the eye. That they, yeah, that's true. There aren't weak the eye or in the mouth? All, there was a quote um, about them getting hit in the mouth or something. The one that died in Dorne, was it Meraxes who died in Dorne? Yes. Yeah, that she died to an eye shot, or it died to an eye shot. 
And then there's the dragon pit incident during the oh, dance. Oh, good point. Yeah. So for, for a split second there, Bronze shot was fired with Drogon's mouth wide open. And I thought for a moment that the, the bolt was going to go through <clears throat> Drogon's mouth and that would have killed him. Yeah. I wonder if in the books we might get a similar kind of scenario where you have someone shooting a scorpion like this at one of Danny's dragons, but it's the Dornish who are allied with Aegon. Because in the history, obviously, it's oh, yeah. the Dornish who take out one of Aegon the Conqueror's dragons with a big old crossbow bolt, basically. And as Aaron mentioned, the Korgiles are scorpions, so we've got that going for us. But really, like, I wonder if this isn't something that, in a small way, is sort of being adapted. Just the Dornish might have this sort of weapon to take out a dragon. Or to try to. Scorpion as an animal just seems more like a desert animal since we're going all in on that. Totally. Uh, yeah. Never mind, that's what it was. Septon Barth ruled out that dragons were vulnerable through their mouths. He said that death comes oh. out of a dragon's mouth, but death does not go in that way. Ah. <laughs> I don't know how he figured that out. Yeah, Barth, what were you doing? George has specifically mentioned that, like, Tolkien's has a dragon with, like, a weak belly. Mm. And it's mentioned somewhere, like, in the World of Ice and Fire or something where he's like, well, it's... The dragon, this myths they tell are not true. Dragons have hard scales and you can't go through them. So, yeah, I think this was just a, a way to get Danny on the ground for an equalizing moment. That being said, one of the dragons in the dragon pit, Shrykos, is killed by Hob the Hewer, who jumps on the dragon's neck and drives his axe seven times into the dragon's skull. And each time he calls out a name of the seven gods, and it's on the last blow, the stranger, mm. that his axe goes into its skull. That symbolism. So they aren't, obviously, that's like seven blows from a huge man sitting on its neck and like wailing away with a big old axe. But I think George is willing to have them as invulnerable as he wants them to be for his purposes, yeah. <laughs> which is which is how it is with everything, for right? Sure. I mean, there's there's almost no hard and fast rules. Yeah, I actually liked it quite a bit. I thought that the dragon that was going to get hit by the scorpion, I was expecting it to be like three miles away, far up in the sky, and this was not. Like, Broad missed the first time, yeah. and then he still didn't hit the dragon like where it really would have killed it. Here it's just like, it's injured, mm -hmm. and it, mm -hmm. it gets Danny down on the ground. Where Jamie is faced with his, his choice. A strong moment between two characters. Yeah, yeah. We also establish what won't work, that whole flurry of arrows heading most likely towards Daenerys, but Drogon, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as User Lemon Wizard points out, it, the dragons are a smart animal, and Drogon like quickly like lifts up, so his belly full of scales catches the onslaught of arrows, and then they all just bounce off. So. Like arrows off a dragon's belly. Ah, yes, as they say. Like water off a duck's back, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh. Now, shouldn't Danny have some sort of like harness or something? I mean, she has Tyrion, who's a famous saddle maker. He made one saddle. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, she doesn't in dance. She learns to train him by. That's true. I guess I don't know, like tapping him or something. Yeah. She's like, I don't have a harness. And it is genuinely cooler to have her just like hopping on and and barebacking it. But yeah. Jamie charges straight at Danny. <laughs> I like how she's doing like battlefield medicine on Drogon. She's stopped to yank out the spear. She is buff. She is ripped. That's not what you're supposed to do. Yeah, trying to pull out a spear. It's not exactly. Uh... Well, that's what she did in Dasnok's pit, and that's how she burned her hands in the books where she is vulnerable to fire and heat. <laughs> mm. But Jeff can attest to this. Like, she doesn't know what the barb is like on the end of that scorpion bolt, where it, her pulling it out like that 
could deal more damage. Yes, and than also just yeah. leaving it. Well, she's in. not going to be able to snap it off. Well, she doesn't have gauze or anything like that to Im- immediately patch yeah. the wound to prevent bleeding from the world's biggest cotton ball. <laughs> Yeah. You would need something to, to, to staunch the bleeding. You have to strap a whole lamb. <laughs> yes. She puts a whole sheep. Maybe she just grabs one of the men on the battlefield and she just like puts him on there. Oh my <laughs> just, god. Just like stay there. Cauterize your own wound. Uh, I guess, yeah, you can cauterize. Actually, well, yeah, maybe dragons cauterize instantly. Just like lightsabers. They have like smoking blood and everything. True. Mm, yeah, they're both true. true. I saw some people speculate that the lance was poisoned. Oh, the, the one that Bronze mm-hmm. shot. Uh, it is coming from Kyburn. Could be. And Kyburn presents uh, Cersei with the poison to uh, for Alaria at the last episode. That's true. Too, right? So he's obviously has a very strong interest in uh, knowledge in poison. So. And makeup. What color do you think Drogon would turn if it was the Strangler? Because obviously he can't turn purple. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Never mind. That's a dumb question. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the context of it was talking about Oberon's lance and whether Oberon's lance was mm. poisoned when he stabbed the mountain. And of right. course, Kyburn was able to bring the mountain back from that if it was poisoning. Mm-hmm. So, and he was able to reverse engineer the poison that killed Marcella. So, yeah. Scorpions do have stingers. Right. Yeah. That are poisonous. Oh, scorpion. Yeah. There was, yeah. yeah, there was some support there. And then it would be like Drogo dying from a wound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. I feel like the whole reason they put Tyrion in this scene was just to have him be the audience proxy for Jamie charging. Be like, no, don't do it. You've got Jamie this night on a horse. Or in the books. Yeah. With a lance, charging at a dragon. Yep. Right? Except for he's not going to save the princess. Like, the dragon belongs to the princess, and the princess is trying to kill him. Yeah, no, you're right. It's totally, like, it's so high fantasy. You have this knight. Like St. George. Exactly, yeah, St. George. But everything's totally just backwards and inside out. St. George is actually an incest twin who (laughs) murders little boys and old women. Jamie is faced with the decision to whether to charge Daenerys and Drogo. And a few scenes before, Bronn is faced with a similar decision whether to grab his bag of gold that just fell off his horse mm. or to pursue trying to kill the dragon. So I feel like it's an intentional paralleling of these two warriors having to make a choice. And both of them choose, I guess you can call it the honorable path, yeah, right? right? In terms of of, of what they choose their duty. Well, honor got immolated. Oh, geez. True. Okay. okay. It's, a, it's a no chance. It's a no chance and no choice moment for them, right? It's a, it's Brienne yeah. at the end. It's, it's Jamie looking at this insurmountable odds and going, well, someone's got to do it. A lot of, yeah, exactly. It is very Jamie. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that there's a user, Barrist in the Bold 61, mm. who talks about how Jamie's charge might have been prompted by him seeing echoes of the Mad King. But I don't think it's that. I think that it's, like as within that thread, um, user Chunky Sue <laughs> says that we've had some great names this cast. Um, or is it no? It might it might actually Chunky Five U. Chunky Five, oh, five Chunky Sue would be better, but but I think it might be Sue, but like the S is spelled with a five. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So that's how I'm interpreting it. Anyways, but like he does, Jamie does the exact same thing at the Whispering Wood. It's not like necessarily that he sees flashes of madness. It's like, this is what Jamie does. He's going to yeah. go headlong straight in for the dumb move that might get him killed and slash or captured. Yeah. That eventually leads to him losing his hand. So much for the Whispering Wood lessons. 
Yeah, I'm wondering <laughs> if, point. like, you know, the last time he did something stupid like this, he, like, lost his hand. Maybe Jamie will lose something else this time. And I'm really hoping that what he loses... His big toe. <laughs> no, nope, those were not. I was really hoping he would finally just lose his love in Cersei, but, you know, you oh. guys do you. Oh. You do you. That makes more sense than his wiener. You were totally setting that up as a body part, though. That is a good point. Like, he's... Someone pointed out... I can't remember who it was. It was on Twitter somewhere on the night of, so it was happening so fast. But someone pointed out that his Lannister armor is literally weighing him down in the in the last scene. I know we're sort of jumping right to him drowning, but, like, it's not exactly subtle. Like, he's being dragged down into the water by his Lannister connections and his his Lannister armor that he's wearing oh. for Cersei. Oh, yeah. Oh. It's it's cool. Here I was just thinking Victorian Greyjoy, but yeah. Yeah, yeah I like that. It's okay because he's got plot floaties. <laughs> yeah. There's no armor stronger than plot armor. <laughs> that was that was uh thanks to our mod Clarky for that one. Clarky. There's a guy around there in the water whose livelihood depends on that guy living who's drowning, so Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I mean, that, we have we have not seen the last of Jamie for no. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just, Okay, this is the inside the episode, which they were giving us some insight into this battle at the end here. And so so D.B. Weiss goes on to say, you have a principal character trying to murder another principal character, and that doesn't happen all too often. Except that I was like, that happens all the time on this show. Cersei killed Robert in season one. (laughs) Joffrey killed Ned in season one. Danny smothered Drogo in season one. Stannis killed Renly in season two. Olena and Littlefinger killed Joffrey in season four. Brienne fought Sandor in season four. Tyrion killed Shay and Tywin in season four. Waiting for the books killed Aemon in season five. (laughs) Stannis and Mel killed Shireen in season five. Brienne killed Stannis in season five. Then Ramsay killed Roos in season six. And then Ramsay was killed by Sansa in season six. Cersei killed the Tyrells in season six. And then just last episode, Jamie killed Olena. So, like, whatever. Uh, what do you want? Yeah, I, I yeah. don't understand why they said that. And then Weiss brought up that this is the first battle where you're rooting for both sides. Blackwater! Blackwater. <laughs> like, I can't believe they said in the inside the episode. I guess we're not supposed to be rooting for Stannis. Yeah, that's how they viewed and that's how they presented him. Which is ridiculous. But but that's the thing is even in that battle, you have Davos and his poor son who gets incinerated. Like, I, I don't know. It was just a dumb thing for them to say. They just weren't thinking and they included it in the inside the episode. Yeah. But it's dumb for them to say that it's the first time we've had people on both sides of a battle that we're rooting for. Because everyone was rooting for Ramsay in the battle. Oh, no, wait. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, in this in this battle, I certainly, I mean, like, yes, they did a really good job humanizing it and everything. And oh, I yeah, yeah, yeah. care about Jamie and Braun as characters now. But if I'm gonna pick, I'm gonna be able to pick a side to root for. I'm not rooting for Cersei. Yeah, right. There's a difference between rooting for the sides and being like, oh shoot, I hope everyone survives, but I hope Danny wins this one. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I was for willing sure. to let Braun die for Drogon. Oh yeah, yeah, we should we should talk. Yeah. We really should talk about that. Bron should just be a dead man. Je- Jeff was ready for it. I saw I saw Jeff yeah. say that on Twitter. <laughs> Bron should have freaking died, man. It's felt like his time. Like what is what is his narrative purpose in the story? I, I don't think he's really had much of a narrative purpose besides to be the quirky sidekick for a long time now. Since ever, yeah. So, well, since ever, right? But so it's it, it's a. Uh, <laughs> 
but he's a fan favorite character, right? So you 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 have this major battle where you have thousands of soldiers being burned to death, being clubbed to death, being you know cut open, um, being run over by by carts, and having all sorts of terrible things happen to them. But you don't kill any characters, any named characters, in at least as far as we know, in the episode itself. And for me, it was the only drawback for the episode is that they had some real stakes, they had some you know real consequences and losses. But they couldn't pull the trigger to have someone like Bronn die or someone like even Randall Tarley or Dickon Tarley. Yeah. People who are named characters end up buying it in the episode. It it didn't feel cheap. Mm-hmm. It felt incomplete, I think is the best way I can put it. Mm. In some ways, it reminded me, it felt like Barristan um, in season five, episode four, because some of the same music played while mm. Jamie uh, was having the dragon fly around him there the music somewhat tricks you into evoking this emotion because you remember it from these other times. Mm. Remember that scene that Grey Worm was saved by Barristan, but Barristan still died. Right. So I'm not so sure that Braun is out of the waters. Mm. Like, yeah, he could have been injured and, like, have... Uh, like a severely burned leg or get gotten shot by an arrow that nobody saw that he like has next episode or something <laughs> right that he it's a fatal wound he loses his hand I, yeah all because he did the right thing and left the gold sitting there actually that would be hilarious if he lost his hand and then he got a gold hand and Jamie just he and Jamie just high five like all day high five clunk clunk clunk, clunk. clunk. yeah, yeah. I think we'll know the moment when Braun dies. The moment that they finally promise him his castle. That's true. And his, like, wife. Like, you know how, like, it's always in movies. You're like, mm-hmm. you've got, like, the police officer or detective. He's like, yeah, I'm about to retire in three days. Get one and day just, left. Yeah, got one day left. And I and I bought my, uh, what what are these, like, trailers and stuff. My and vacation go. home. Exactly. And then they die. Ticket to fancy lad school. <laughs> exactly. That's ha- when that happens to Braun. That's when he dies. Yes. In his defense, he wouldn't have gotten where he is if he weren't a good fighter. That's true. He does say that. What, but I mean, what is being a good, what can you, it's like being a good fighter against the nuclear holocaust. Yeah. Like how does being a good fighter really impact anything yeah, no. That's statistics. in the battle itself? It's statistics at that point. He wasn't in the main line. So it sort of goes against yeah. the idea that there are no old, bold cell swords, right? True. Yeah. <laughs> but he was pretty bold. Yeah. Yeah. I did love how they shot the last couple of scenes in there, like how you saw the the fire open up and Jamie's reaction. Yes. And I did like how Braun just like sort of came out of nowhere and saved him. Just the directing of that entire sequence, how it felt completely completely like a breath of fresh air compared oh, yeah. to Euron's attack. A fire. <laughs> yeah, no, that exactly. Euron's Euron's attack on uh on the, the fleet, the Iron Fleet. There were so many more longer cuts yes. and I could tell spatially like what was going on even though a giant thing was flying around super fast in the sky whereas like you could they couldn't even hold the camera on Euron just coming <laughs> down on the the Corvus in one single cut <laughs> mm-hmm. in yeah. that scene yeah. on a stage that they had everything that was very small and here you've got all these people running around you got cameras up on these rigs and it was just phenomenal how they how they shot this yeah it was amazing this was the this was the first time that i was able to watch the dragon and forget that it was cgi yeah actually yeah yeah i didn't, oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that but that's true i mean every I, other time they've shown the dragons my brain has been like and there's the cgi and this scene i forgot that they weren't dragons yeah you know what you're right 
Because, and I'll be honest with you, even stuff like like big budget movies, like the Hobbit movies, smog looks fake as hell <laughs> compared to Drogon. Like, <laughs> yes. and I mean, obviously those are a little more cartoony and like like wacky. But yeah, this I don't know that there was something about the acting and and the effects of setting all those people on fire, maybe just connecting the physical yeah. to the CGI that really They had worked. a really, they had a really good tennis ball on a stick for this one. <laughs> exactly. It was a huge <laughs> tennis ball. They, they threw it up in the air. <laughs> yes. What was Smog like in those movies? Because I haven't seen Did it. Um, Benedict like, Cumberbatch. Maybe it was like a basketball. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Did he speak? Oh yeah, he, Smog speaks. Yeah. yeah, he spoke. Oh, I did Hello, not know. <laughs> yeah. Did he like perform stand up on the side? <laughs> Let's see my one night show. Also, I wanted to point out, because um, I don't know how many people pay attention to this, but this episode was directed by Matt Shackman, who is best known for directing a ton of episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Really? He is. <laughs> yeah, this was his first Game of Thrones foray. He's an EP on It's Always Sunny. Obviously a show known for its dragon CGI. Well, I just, it's hilarious because I guess, I mean, you would never expect an It's Always Sunny director to give us, like, that field of fire battle, but they did it. Nailed it, dude. There were no shots in this episode like the last one where I felt like something was missing. Everything, like, he sold Brienne fighting Arya when... Arya was like it was choreographed mm. so that Arya would match her, but she really couldn't because of the size difference and and that sort of thing. But it was shot really well, every single scene. Yeah, and the the look that he got off, like uh, uh what's his Isaac Hempstead, right? Mm-hmm. Like when he looked up and said, "Chaos is a ladder." Like all that stuff was just really amazing. This may have been one of the best directed episodes of Game of Thrones in a long time. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. A, What's so, the director's name again? Matt Shackman. Matt Shackman. Yeah. I I, I think if it's. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm, 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 I was gonna say I was listening to History of Westeros right before this, and if I'm remembering right, like that they were talking about how that guy directed some "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" episodes. So mm-hmm. a lot of the ways that this episode does a good job of callbacks is because like "It's Always Sunny." does a lot of callbacks <laughs> and like it's a cornerstone of comedy in general to do callbacks that's how you create game and comedy davos was funnier this episode than he's ever been i think like his <laughs> his little lines about like is it king john or king snow like that kind of stuff that was really funny yeah maybe a good way to close out the episode is is this in your guys top five or episodes wow. of game of thrones no. ever no is it just yes. because i've been so <laughs> waiting for this that it was really good I, this is this is definitely in my top know. ten. I don't know about top five, but definitely top ten. I just don't remember individual episodes like everyone else does. <laughs> well, like I, I have I'm that thinking problem. Episodes like Blackwater, and then there's Kiss by Fire, which is just like an incredible episode. Yeah, that has the uh, Sandor and Beric fight. Baylor. Uh, Baylor is a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. The last time I felt this way was Hard Home. Mm. Yes. Oh uh, yeah, that's fair. I would say this surpasses Hard Home. I think it's I, an episode. Yeah, I, because, I agree with that. but I think that was the mm-hmm. last time that like mm-hmm. I felt energized. I think it, this might be the the detractor side of me coming out, but I feel like that this episode was really, really good, but it stands out in my mind because the episodes preceding it for a <laughs> while haven't felt as good yeah. as, as earlier seasons, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's fair. Like when we gave our rating last time, I think some of you guys were were too high on your little grade scores. You gave too many, too many bananas. It might be, yeah. It doesn't give you room to grow. 
You gave it an A. You gave it an apple. Initially. On the curve. On a curve, A curvy right. apple. Which I now have to adjust. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I would rank this one as a solid uh, an apple. I would give it an apple. A one on the binary scale for sure. I don't know what scale we're using. A to, a to C Apples minus, right? Apples to dingo. Apples to dingo. But how is it with rice? <laughs> yeah, that's true. How is it with rice? Yeah, that's right. We are, we are a Reddit cast. Rice-a-roni, the San Francisco treat, SF cereal, Pharrell ding, ding. equals LF little thing. <laughs> so Michael gives it an apple. Yeah, I'll give it an apple. Fat Walda. Apple. It's apples, bananas, coconut, dingo. You could also give it like a banana plus if you want, you know. Banana split. <laughs> but what if I like coconuts as a food more than all the other ones you've you just know, mentioned? Coconuts, not that I've ever eaten dingo. Coconuts <laughs> match some of the physio- <laughs> most of the physiological characteristics for being a mammal. They have hair and milk. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> so that's. Uh, anyway, I gave it an uh, apple. A fat wall is reduced incomprehensibility. Eliana likes coconuts. Aaron, where are you at? Um. I haven't thought about it. I was too busy explaining the rating system. <laughs> We're the worst. Um, We're the worst. It's the worst podcast. A minus. Apple minus. Great. Jeff, where are you at? Guys, why do you listen? Why does anyone listen to us? I don't know. Too many. I give it an apricot. <laughs> oh, okay. Awesome. Apricots are better apricot. than apples. Mm. I will I will attest to You know to what? That. I give it a pluot because I really like plums. The plum and apricot hybrid. It's really tasty. You got to try it. Mm. Um, House Plum is a good house, too. Ah, I give it a Maynard Plum out of Plum. Really, we should rate it based on our own predications, so I think it should be how many chains does Eliana give it? <laughs> I mean, but, like, there's it's a binary scale. It's, like, a chain. Or also, there's no chains, but or two chains, so it's, like, really just, like, I don't know. Did you see that article I sent you? No. How two chains? Sometimes. Apparently, it sometimes wears three or four chains to bed. Uh what? I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> I feel lied to. <laughs> can I give it a? Can I give it an aardvark? Totally. That's a pretty high. Uh, like you, you do you. That's pretty high ranking. By the seven, it's time to wrap it up. I have been Bookshelf Stud, also known as Michael. I have been Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl. I've been Jeff, otherwise known as Brendan B. Fish. Aaron Admiral Curd. I had something for this. <laughs> <laughs> Was it your name? <laughs> keep that in (laughs) we cut me saying keep that in no leave that in too actually no leave that in yeah oh okay this is where people have just left us playing in the background they don't people have fallen asleep by this point yeah so exactly and i'm fat walda thank you guys so much for listening to another no you're not you're just big bone (laughs) Thank you for listening. I'm going to mute all of you guys. Maybe. <laughs> um, thank you for listening to another thrilling episode of The Quillen, an evening at The Quillen Tankard with your favorite moderators from the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Don't forget to um, follow, subscribe to our channel on YouTube where you can find all of this. You can find us also on iTunes and Google Play. Um, you can visit our website at maestermonthly.wordpress.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter, definitely, because we're very funny. Uh, Twitter at Maester Monthly, um, and of course you can always find us moderating the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Don't forget to leave a nice comment. Uh, if you leave a mean comment, we'll ban you from the subreddit. <laughs> and smash that like button. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to our tireless editor Aaron, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.